if you are going to gauge success off how many converts you have and how many people attend your church faithfully and don't rob you, then you're going to be really butthurt at the end of the day. Uh, I think <laughs> we have to know the the truth of the situation, which is what am I called to do? One is called to plant another waters, but it's ultimately the Lord who provides the increase. Man. I think sometimes we wouldn't say it, but we think if I do this right, I will provide the increase. Welcome to another episode of Around the Block, a Creek Collective podcast. I'm your host, the BD, Anya Buile, but you can call me Pastor T. Today we're talking with my sister, Ashley Davenport. She's the Neighbor Outreach Director here at Anacostia River Church, where I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors. In that role, her responsibility is to basically teach the church how to neighbor well and to connect us with our neighbors in meaningful relationships and at meaningful times in the lives of our neighbors and our church. Now, sometimes the meaningful time is a time of tragedy, time of loss, a time of death. It's hard to serve in inner city neighborhoods that are marked by such tragedy, such death. These things are not normal, but they are common. And the question becomes, how do we care for ourselves while engaging tragic loss and suffering? How do we lament and yet continue? And how do we have lament and sorrow and suffering flavor our ministry and flavor our expectations in ministry? That's the conversation we pick up here. So listen in, let us know what you think. Pray for us, pray with us as we think about ministering in the midst of grief and sorrow. Ashley, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Hey, glad to glad to have you. Glad for the wisdom and the grace you impart, um, which I know will be a blessing to so many folks who are trying to do gospel ministry in urban context, mm-hmm. right? Now, in our last conversation, it was clear that you've been in a variety of urban contexts, um, but more specifically, contexts that are neglected and mm-hmm. vulnerable, under-resourced, largely black and brown. Yeah. Right? And in that context, you, you've been ministering to young people mm-hmm. and you've lost a number of young people. Yeah. Talk with us about that. Yeah. So as I mentioned in our last conversation, in Kansas, I was going to several funerals a year which is very abnormal. Um, It's very abnormal to see kids who are in high school. Abnormal for Kansas or you're saying abnormal? This is not how life is supposed to be. Not how life is supposed to be. Baby caskets, Mm. kids who are in high school, the main majority of the audience being young people, bewildered. It's just, it's not supposed to be that way. And so whether it's gun violence or whether it has been suicide or even tragic accidents. I lost four students last year in a tragic car accident and the same week lost another young man from gun violence. And so I think for me, I think the Lord has made me a very empathetic soul. And that has been a very hard thing to continue to love community and want to open your heart, knowing that you can lose as well. And then Adding on top of that, 
were they saved? And so there's been a lot of learning how to grieve in this work. I want to talk about that, learning how to grieve. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to do this gospel work in the context that we care about, that's probably something you need to learn to do. Because while um, the kinds of losses we're talking about are not normal, it's not the way life was supposed to be. Right. It is, in another sense, common. Yeah. Right. uh, To many of our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so... um, Talk with us about how you have learned to grieve, how you have learned to process that kind of loss and to continue in, a, in an empathetic way yeah. um, to serve. I would honestly say I'm still learning. And like a lot of learning, learning by failing. Mm-hmm. I reached a point in my career that I was just burnt out and I didn't feel anything at all. Mm-hmm. And started to be, you know, what is going on? Why is this? I don't feel good and I don't feel bad. Mm. I've become apathetic. I know when I first started in Kansas, hearing the stories and truly entering into the context of my kids, I would sometimes leave the field and go back to my office and just weep because it just felt like evil was prevailing. Mm. And felt I felt very small. I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? And... The moment that I was no longer responding like that, I was like, there's probably a problem. And so I started to recognize that uh, I have a therapist on deck, (laughs) a standing appointment where honestly I am processing through a lot of what I see on a weekly basis. And she is very, she's trauma informed. I think finding a good therapist to meet your needs is important. I have had some not so good therapists along the way, but I think even one of the things I'm learning now is to not compare the way that the context affects me to the way that it might affect my peers Mm. and to honor what I need and to know that if I can't take care of myself in the work, then I won't be here for very long. I mean, I got to a point where I was like, I just want to go sell coffee I was like, I don't want to do ministry anymore. I don't want to hear about anybody's life. Like, can I sell, you know, makeup at Sephora? I don't even care about makeup, but at least after five o'clock, it won't follow me home. And so when I got to that, I knew that there was something wrong and I needed to, I think I came to you and was like, I need a book. It's called uh, When the Hood Weeps. And you were like, are you actually looking for that book? Like, that's the name of it? I was like, no, but that's what I need. Like, I need, yeah, somebody to write a book of how do you stay in this work when it's not even always death. Sometimes it's just the heaviness of tragedies. I Mm. mean, recently there's a young lady that I'm working with who had a horrific thing happen in her life. And again, I heard about it and I had to take a minute. And I was like, I need to weep and lament. And I think what I'm learning as I've done some of this work is we as a church don't know how to lament in America. Mm. Uh, I think we're trying. Um, Mark Vrogop's book, um, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, has been very helpful. But I think I'm still learning what does it look like to lament. So I I hear you talking about several things. You can correct me if I'm wrong or expand Mm -hmm. this. Um, One is it's important to make a distinction between normal and common. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So that we may see loss 
commonly, mm-hmm. but the kinds of losses we're seeing, we ought not to regard as normal. Yeah. Right? These are effects of the fall. Um, secondly, I'm hearing the importance of therapy mm-hmm. and getting some counseling, some help in that regard. And then I'm hearing you make a distinction between caring for Ashley mm-hmm. and how Ashley copes or grieves, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps being different from colleagues mm-hmm. and how others cope and grieve. And um, I'm inferring from that uh, two things. One, not sort of evaluating yourself against them. So mm-hmm. if they're not bothered, you're not looking at yourself saying, well, I shouldn't be bothered. Mm. Right. I've been there. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe not also projecting onto them. Yeah. Which is to say, you know, I'm feeling a certain way. Everybody ought to be feeling this mm-hmm. way uh, because we grieve differently. Mm-hmm. We cope differently. We have varying kinds of resilience mm-hmm. or varying kinds of weaknesses that mm-hmm. these things interact with. Yeah. Um, what, what else would you say would be important in terms of dealing with grief in a context where loss is common? Um, or just dealing with the pressures of, you, you made a point about the sometimes not even loss, it's other things in the context. Mm-hmm. Dealing with the pressures of the context in a way that keeps you whole, refreshed, um, resilient, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Other things you found helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think even that distinction you made of the difference between normal and common. Mm-hmm. And I think even digging deeper and knowing God's heart of mm. like, what do you think about this, Lord? Mm. And unfortunately, like we've noted, there hasn't been a lot of resources mm. made because a lot of people writing resources aren't in our context. Yep. So they, it's hard to find uh, resources about that. But I think it's driven me back to the word of, Lord, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. And knowing that he's a God that weeps and that he's not just indifferent, mm. I think has been... Very good. And I think even as we spoke before, the importance of learning, learning Mm. your trade. Mm. And unfortunately, part of learning this trade is learning how to grieve and learning about trauma. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of our neighbors, friends, loved ones that we are going to deal with in our context are dealing with trauma and the after effects of trauma. So it's been beneficial for me as I've learned more about trauma I've heard somebody I was working with a week or two ago where I look and I'm like, you are actually having PTSD right now. Mm. You're having flashbacks and dreams. You can't stay present. And so now having to learn, okay, this person might not be able to get to the resource because counseling is what? $200 an hour Mm. for somebody who's good okay, counselor, how can you teach me how to show up here? I'm not a therapist, but help somebody get from point A to point B. Or even now, like that's something we're doing in our church of trying to be trauma-informed because, mm-hmm. again, we might not notice what is coming before us where we might write somebody off of, they're just crazy, mm-hmm. which you should never say that. But <laughs> some people might say that, and it's like, no. They have a lot of unprocessed trauma and what just happened is you triggered them and that is why this over-the-top response is happening and how do we walk with somebody, again, for the long haul? I think we want quick answers and that's not it. And at the same time, knowing that as you are helping carry a burden, it's burdensome. And so 
even giving yourself permission to say, I'm not going to be able to continue to help lift this if I don't rest. I mean, we were joking about it earlier. I did a long run yesterday and, you know, my whoop band said I didn't recover. And it would be asinine for me to go out again and try to run nine or 10 miles today. But I think emotionally we try to do that where, you know, we deal with this heavy thing and we think, well, this is just my nine to five, which I don't actually think anybody in ministry thinks that. But, you know, this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. But it's like if you don't incorporate some kind of self-care, some kind of casting those cares onto the Lord and you try to go out and do it again, you're only going to do that for so long until you break down and then you can't anymore. Yeah. Amen. No, this this context is where easy, simple ideas go to die. Right. <laughs> right. It's just like you you can They don't even that. live for a little That's bit. That's exactly right. This this context will disabuse you of savior complex. Mm-hmm. It, it will uh, bring you face to face with both your limitedness mm-hmm. and your mortality yeah. and the mortality of, of people around you. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's shocking for for I think a culture that's so accustomed to living in escapism and and fantasy mm-hmm. uh, to be brought to face to face so commonly, so often with these things. If you signed up for ministry in neglected and vulnerable neighborhoods, you signed up for a front row seat to suffering, the community's suffering and your own suffering. I don't really know what a whoop band is, but I understand the analogy Ashley just used. All people in Christian ministry and Christian life could use a device that tells them whether or not they have recovered from some strenuous life or ministry situation. Wouldn't it be nice to have a wristband that flashed red when you need to stop, yellow when you need to slow down or rest, and green when you are recovered enough to minister? But we don't have that kind of technology. So we need the social technology of the church. We need the body of Christ to develop sensors and heads-up displays to give us readings on our soul, to alert us about any problems in the engine of our being. And so we turn now in the conversation to talk about rhythms and practices in the church that can be helpful for coping with tragedy, loss, and grief. Think now with me about kind of rhythms and practices in the church plant at a sort of a staff level or as sort of a the, the culture of the church and uh, the staff. What have you seen that's been helpful, either again from your previous experience with Young Life or MAM, uh, or just as a you know relatively new member of our own staff, things that you see that you think are helpful or necessary that you wish were in place or more common in the life of churches that would make for healthy rhythms, healthy practices of self-care and processing the heavy things that we we come into contact with. Yeah. So the first Sunday that I actually attended ARC, I will never forget, I was sitting in the audience and we had a time of prayer and that prayer was a specific prayer of lament. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there and saying, I'm going to be here for a while because I think if we come into church on Sunday mornings and we don't 
actually address some of those things. I think that that's where the disconnect between the church and mm. and people is happening because mm. they're like, yo, George Floyd just died. You ain't going to pray about that. Mm. Or, yo, there's stuff going on in Ukraine that's like complicated. Like there's people dying. And then also there's racism going on there. Like y'all ain't going to pray about that. Mm. And so I think just acknowledging that's very simple. Like having a, a regular rhythm of lament if I'm honest, I think we could, I think we do more reactionary laments at ARC. And I think yeah. we could maybe incorporate that on a more cyclical yeah. basis. But I think having that, and I think even communicating what to expect. And so a lot of, unfortunately, what I've learned is not necessarily because I've been a part of organizations that have done it well. It's mm. because I've struggled in organizations that haven't. And so I think having a place where, it's contextualized and it's commonly talked about. I mean, that's something we're trying to build now with, we ask our members to move into the neighborhood and it's like, hey, what, you need to know what to expect when you move into the neighborhood. And you might not want to live on that block if you live over there. Like, just know that this is what it's going to be. I think we need to be de-glamorized. I don't even know if that's a word, just urban ministry. People mm -hmm. think they're going to come and it's going to make them feel good. Don't get mad when you start feeling like trash because... You might not see any converts. The violence is still happening. And, oh, they just stole from you. <laughs> and it, like that, that happened to me and ma'am a lot where we were pouring our heart and soul on these kids. We loved them. We went to their parent-teacher conferences, their games. And them jokers would rob the gym on the weekends. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm offended. Like, I thought we was raising y'all better than this. And the very one who we just fed, like, stole everything. Mm. And it's just like, <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. And so I think even as I think about giving realistic expectations to people who are serving in the community of like, hey, what does success really look like here? Mm. What does faithfulness really look like here? Because if you are going to gauge success off how many converts you have and how many people attend your church faithfully and don't rob you, then you're going to be really butthurt at the end of the day. Uh, I think we have to know the, the truth of the situation, which is what am I called to do? One is called to plant another waters, but it's ultimately the Lord who provides the increase. I think sometimes we wouldn't say it, but we think if I do this right, I will provide the increase. Mm. And it's like, that ain't my business. And so I think learning that and knowing what to expect. And I think that there's an art to that because what we don't want to do is demonize a community and talk bad about a community. So I think that there's a, a way of sitting in reality, which honestly, even if you work in a corporate America or in the suburbs, like sin is pervasive everywhere. Yeah. And so yeah, like they might be on prescription drugs, but that's still a thing over there. So I think just knowing realistically of what it means to live in a fallen world, I think that that's something I've had to learn and pray about too is I think because the gospel is so common to me, I, which forgive me, Lord, that's so blasphemous to say, mm -hmm. um, it has become com common in a sense of, okay, Genesis 3, like Genesis 1, 2, perfect. God created the world. It failed. Everything's broken. It's like, but do you really know what it means that everything broke? Mm. And do you really know what it means to live in a fallen world? I think in America, sometimes we don't know that as readily, maybe as our brothers and sisters who are in majority world contexts that aren't as affluent. And so I think it would be healthy for churches to have a realistic 
good, deep theology on sin and its effects on our world, suffering, and the role that it plays in the life of even believers, and a healthy way and rhythm of limiting. Um, My therapist told me once, she said she actually was uh, practicing therapy in an oncology wing, and her professor told her, if you don't know how to grieve daily, you won't stay in this work. And I think that that's something that I've had to figure out of what does it look like for me to grieve daily what I see so that I can stay in the work. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, and I'm thinking about the fact that as a, a local church, we certainly have not done this perfectly. I would say we've not even done it adequately. Mm. Right. So to say we haven't done it perfectly sounds like, you know, we, we, we somehow are really good, but we're just a little short. No, the reality is I think we've not done it adequately. And I think it's it's one of the effects of having most of your formation happening outside of the context mm. and then coming into the context, not really knowing it yeah. firsthand, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we came into the neighborhood. It's like, we were real clear, we're not saviors. That much we knew. Yeah. <laughs> we ain't Jesus, right? Um, and we were really clear that we wanted to be in solidarity with the neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? What we were less clear on are the kinds of experiences and, and from time to time, sacrifices mm-hmm. that presence and solidarity would require. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about helping newcomers to the neighborhood learn to sort of study the neighborhood's history, to study its present, to know, know from block to block, you know, which blocks are hot, mm-hmm. which blocks are not, to recognize that things are going to happen. Either they will be things that you witness which is mm-hmm. more often the case, mm-hmm. uh, or there may be sometimes things that happen to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to 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 sort of develop the resilience to persevere in the midst of that. When we first came back to the states and was sitting down with different people talking about the church plant, sat with a a, a city elder, mm-hmm. sat there with little Kango on, listening to me talk about the plan, <laughs> asking me questions, and. Uh, I had enough sense to say, okay, you guys tell me what I should know. Yeah. And he just, the one thing he offers, the one thing I offer, he says, if you're going to do this work, mm-hmm. you got to be committed to a revolutionary patience. And that's, that's stuck with me these, these seven years. He's like, nothing happens fast. Mm-hmm. Change is not radical. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need to abandon those dreams if you yeah. have them, right? Yeah. And commit yourself to a, a revolutionary patience, to, mm-hmm. to really just planting yourself, living here, becoming first an acceptable outsider, becoming then a, a real part of the community and um, taking the good with the bad, you know, and, and, and preaching Jesus. And so um, we need as a church, I think, to get savvier about um, helping our own people be sort of shaped toward those kinds of commitments. Well, and I think you and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago where, I mean, I think we're just here having an honest conversation. I know that over the years that I've been at the church, I've heard some uh, disgruntlement or dissatisfaction mm-hmm. because I think, and we talked about it, we talk about the vision, but unless you've actually been in leadership, you don't actually know that like, hey, this is like my 20 year vision. That's right. That's right. I, you helped me to realize Not this, my to next realize year I vision. need to be putting some timelines to some of this stuff. Right. right. Because right. what happens with planners is they yeah. get disillusioned where they were yeah. like, well, you said we were going to do this and we were going to do that. And I'm just like, you do recognize that like that 
is a very long process. And so people have been asking me about my job. They're like, what do you want to see? And I was like, look, I might not see half or even a a fraction of what I see Mm -hmm. for another five years. Like when I took this job, it was an intentional move of, hey, this is where I want to set my career. And I have no end in mind in that, in the sense of this isn't a three-year job. Mm -hmm. This isn't a whatever, like it's gonna, it's not only a revolutionary patience, but- you can't be patient if you ain't there. That's so exactly right. That's you exactly be right. There. So there's a sense in which, I mean, you, you're helping me even now. There's a sense in which I think if you're a planter going in a neighborhood like this, um, I think what you want to say to those people who are thinking about coming with you is I plan to grow old and die there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to the best of my knowledge. Now, the Lord could change some things. And, and so I'm not saying you're in sin if you don't. But to give people a sense of the, the sort of long arc. It's mm-hmm. like I plan to grow old and die there. And I want you guys to come join me, right? And and join the community in doing that. Plant your life there, live there, be a part of community, construct community, understand community, grow old there, um, and just, yeah, buy a burial plot there, right? Because to move the needle, that's what it's going to take, Yeah. right? It's This is not a three-year assignment. And we think, okay, we're there three years, church was independent, we had this great impact on the community. Well. They still watching you to wonder if you're going to be here next week. Right. Um, and so that that notion of patience and, you know, slowly becoming more indigenous mm-hmm. is is really important. Well, and you saying that makes me think of something. And if I may, I'm a lay member. Come on. So I think one of the things I often hear with church plants is if the Lord's calling you to this work, come join us. Mm. And sometimes I wonder, I can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. I wonder if pastors, Go ahead. I, I know, Go ahead. I'm Stay sorry, are so desperate. Okay, great. <laughs> I wonder if pastors are so desperate to have people join them that they don't actually do the, even the long work on the front end to discern if this team is actually the team that's called to come. Amen. And I Amen. think that Amen. some of the questions are, if somebody says, hey, I want to come with you to join your church plan, don't just say amen, hallelujah. Like, mm-hmm. why? Yeah. And I don't think we're doing that. And really what I've seen is a lot of people who come and they be like, whoa, 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 I didn't know. And they're disgruntled and then they leave. And then we're hurt because maybe our team of not that many mm-hmm. broke in half. Right. And there's just a, a disillusionment that I think that there's some work on the front end before you well even said. launch well said. that can really that I think that the pastors may have done if they haven't done it, that's probably not good either. But I would hope that the pastors have done of how did you even discern in your own heart that the Lord was calling you here? And I think that needs to happen with your planners as well. Uh, And their teams. That's, that's well said. That's well said. Sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, what you're saying, basically we kind of land on this point. Pastors are thirsty too. Right. They get thirsty for members. They get thirsty for people mm-hmm. to, to want to help and they draw encouragement from that. Yeah. When in fact it's it's the mission that's central and critical mm-hmm. that we're trying to sort of enroll in ourselves and have others enroll in. And we need to count the cost. It's the cost 100%. counting. That's yeah. what it is. That's it's what the I'm trying to say. Cost counting that's not happening on the front end. There's a romance about either church planting or romance about urban church planting Mm -hmm. that I think tempts people to not count the cost. And so when the costs come due, oftentimes folks wilt or shrink Mm -hmm. back uh, or hurt 
mm-hmm. and the outcome is something other than what we had hoped for in terms of commitment, longevity, um, faithfulness, you know, in the place. Well, and I wonder if then in that point is not just a revolutionary patience when you get there, but before you go. Amen. Because I think that there's a, not just a thirst, but people be froggy. They be like, let's go. We got yes. a plant tomorrow. And I'm like, hey, do more work on the front end so that you're actually ready to launch this thing as opposed to we did it. And it's like, yeah, now you're trying to change a tire 70 miles per hour going down the road mm-hmm. when really we could have changed a tire before we went and had better success. We can't microwave church plants or air fry spiritual results. Nothing about lasting change happens quickly. The Christian life travels a certain pathway. We move from grief to glory. First comes the crown of thorns, then comes the splendor of resurrection. And we repeat that pattern, beloved, every day as we die to self, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. So it's an interesting disassociation from Jesus and the gospel whenever church members and pastors want to be instantly successful and instantly fruitful without any suffering. That, that ain't how this works. At the Creek Collective, we are not romantics about the neighborhoods to which we're called. At least we, we don't want to be romantics. We want to take seriously the reality, the inordinate reality of tragedy, loss, violence, addiction, poverty, suffering, and the grief, anxiety, trauma, depression, and nihilism that follow. Those things ought to remove any savior complexes we have. The reality of those things force us into revolutionary patience. But they should not rob us of hope. We are hope dealers, and it's the hope that Jesus gives that keeps us in the ministry, in the community, and in people's lives at those moments when Jesus is most needed. Perhaps our most fundamental ministry is to incarnate the hope that comes from Jesus in situations that can feel so utterly hopeless. We're not sufficient for these things, but praise be to God, our sufficiency comes from him. Till next time, every blessing. 